Hello, and welcome to Plot Mechanics. I'm your host, Steve Voitage. We're tackling a different kind of film today, not in the summer blockbuster category. One that was successful Oscar bait. What's the move when you don't know what the game is? The next mistake our countries make could be the last one. Bridge of Spies. As always, we'll have a plethora of spoilers, senor. Quick recap. The movie opens on Mark Rylance's character Rudolph Abel painting portraits and practicing his spycraft. He's tailed sometimes with amusing clumsy humanists by the FBI who arrests him. Tom Hanks' character James B. Donovan, an insurance lawyer, is approached to defend him. Everyone's attitude is that Abel's guilty. He's a spy, but we need due process because we're America and that's what we do. Donovan takes the case, defends Abel with a zeal that no one else wants him to. So much so his family's attacked and threatened. He loses the verdict but is able to convince the judge not to execute Abel. In case the Russians capture an American spy, they will be able to trade. Interspersed with those scenes are pilots being trained to spy over Russia with a brand new U-2 spy plane. After speech before the Supreme Court enables defense by Donovan. Donovan's hypothetical comes true. A U-2 plane is shot down by the Russians, and the pilot is captured. This is around the hour mark. Donovan is drafted by the CIA to negotiate the trade, able for the American pilot powers. Soon after, we see the Berlin Wall being built, and an American student prior who tries to save his girlfriend and his thesis is arrested. When Donovan learns this against the CIA's wishes, Donovan wants to trade able for both prior and powers. In the strange broken land of East Germany, through his skills as a negotiator, Donovan is able to unravel secret motivations, spycraft, and statecraft to secure the trade. Abel is returned to the Soviet Union, though not to welcome arms. Donovan returns home to his family, exhausted but victorious. This one was actually a request. I hadn't seen this movie before. Now, I do want to start off by saying that I have nothing but respect for the master filmmaker that is Steven Spielberg. I was listening to another podcast, Script Notes, and one of the guys on there made the point that one of the reasons he thinks we don't appreciate Spielberg as much as we should is that because he's still around and still making movies. In my opinion, there's no one who does it better. And this movie made a lot of money, and it won a lot of awards. But my friend found it pretty underwhelming, and she wanted to know why. And that's exactly why I like doing this podcast. So I watched it with an open mind, but I found I agreed with her. At least, I half agreed with her. And I do think I can answer why. Problem number one, a tale of two films. Usually I talk about the center, why a movie should be made and what the story is about later on. But I think it's important to mention here. This movie is about a real person, James B. Donovan, who famously defended a Russian spy, successfully saving him from execution by saying they may need him if an American gets captured, and then brokered that very deal to trade that spy for the U.S.'s downed YouTube pilot. In my brief research of the history as well as why Spielberg made this movie, that's the why. A guy's legal defense, that you shouldn't execute a man in case they capture one of our guys, ends up being the same guy who handles the negotiation when that hypothetical comes up. That's a great frame for a film. And you might be fooled by my summary or others that you may have read that that sounds like a pretty unified story. But the way that it's presented in Bridge of Spies is two different but connected stories. It's either two films or one film with an hour-long prologue. The first film is a courtroom drama, where a lone lawyer is up against the U.S. legal system and the zeitgeist of his people to defend an enemy combatant that threatens his way of life. The second is a spy drama slash thriller with mistaken identity, double crosses, spycraft, lies, and physical danger. This film won awards and is incredibly well-reviewed, yet myself and many people in my life found it to be quite lacking. Why is there the disconnect? I think because the second film works pretty well and only suffers from sins committed by the first pretty flat film that precedes it. So most of my analysis and my fixes will involve that first part. Problem number two, a story with no but. Imagine I'm telling you a story at a dinner party. We're there with our cocktails and I say to you, let me tell you a story. 
You say, okay. I say, I went out of my house this morning, I went to Walgreens, and I picked up some medicine, paid for it, and took it back home. I look at you, finished with my tail, and you stare blankly back at me. That's super boring, you say. That's not a story. And you would be right, because there's no but in it. A story doesn't start until the normal is broken somehow. From the epic, I was going to Walgreens to pick up some medicine, but there was a massive flood. Or I got there, but there was a robbery. Or to the human, I was going to Walgreens to pick up medicine, but I was too sick to get there. I almost passed out. The first part of this film suffers from having no but. Look at the story here. A spy is followed and captured. He's put on trial, given a competent lawyer where he is convicted and then spared death, so they will have something to trade. There's no but there. Everything in that summary is logical, the best possible outcome for the circumstance. But he's innocent. But there's an ulterior motive. But he was just about to get out of that life. But Donovan will lose his family and his practice. None of those things that might break the normal are there. The closest we get is Abel not being treated with the presumption of innocence. Your Honor. Of course, I salute you. We all salute you for taking on a thankless task. This man has to have due process, but let's not kid each other. He'll receive a capable defense. And God willing, he'll be convicted. Come on, but that's a pretty small but. He is guilty. The film makes no bones about that. So am I really going to get emotional on a point of procedure? On the surface, you're dealing with spies and laws and huge hostile countries playing chess across the globe. But in reality, in this specific story, you're dealing with a criminal being caught and then being convicted. There's no but there, no surprise or twist. Even though the details seem like they would be epic, everything you think should happen does. Problem number three, romancing the audience. Let's talk about Abel. Now, our hero is obviously Donovan in the story, and we'll get to him later. But his job is to defend Abel in the courtroom drama portion of our story. So what's Abel's job in that drama, in that story? To be a sympathetic subject, so that I care as much as possible about Donovan's struggle. Now, there are automatic triggers and circumstance that would make that happen. If he were innocent, boom. Done. Doesn't matter what kind of person he is. A person innocent of a crime, being railroaded by the system, automatically gets those audience sympathy juices going. But Abel's guilty. He's done the things they say. So that's not going to work. Our sympathy is going to be based on how much we like him. And there aren't many things there we can hang our hats on. Mark Rylance won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this performance. I try to avoid talking about acting, or cinematography, or any other aspect of the film in these podcasts, because while incredibly important they make the movie, they can obscure the problems in the structure of a story. It's also the reason I've made this an audio podcast. Tom Hanks's charisma, or CGI explosions, can cover up a lot of problems. When the pretty pictures and the pretty people are taken away, you can see if there are any bones holding all that meat together. I can see Mark Rylance's performance as very clever and well-crafted, but completely ineffective for the story. He took this sequence. You don't seem alarmed. Would it help? And made that the center of his performance. It happens three times in the film. Now, there is a version of that where a human being facing overwhelming odds keeps his or her cool, a stiff upper lip, and moves forward. We eat that up. But Rylance moves Abel between indifference and befuddlement. Actors spend energy in the scene just to get him to pay attention. 
They're in the, the teeth are in the other thing. Look at me. Fetch him. We are agents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Look at me. I'm talking to you. He appears not worried not to cover his true feelings, but because he's not really worried. It seems like he doesn't care whether he lives or dies. So if that's true, I don't care. And therefore, I can't get on board with Donovan caring that much either. This is a problem for the other two prisoners as well, though in different ways. And this is also where those sins from the first film bleed into the second. Let's take our prisoners in order. The first was Abel, who gets convicted but not executed. Next is our downpilot powers. There are sequences that set up the stakes. For public purposes, as far as your wife or mother or sweetheart or the good Lord above, your mission does not exist. If it does not exist, you do not exist. You cannot be shot down. You cannot be captured. And in a really fantastic action sequence, our pilot hesitates and isn't able to destruct or kill himself. Now he's in enemy hands being tortured and pumped for info. He seems like a pretty good candidate for the trade. But then another person gets taken prisoner. He's a student, Pryor. And why does he get captured? Well, as the sequence stands, he casually bikes around the building of the Berlin Wall so we can get a good look at it, then tries to find his girlfriend and Professor Father to get them out. They're stopped by guards, she escapes, but they manhandle his thesis, and he can't take that. My name is Frederick Pryor. I'm an economics student. Wirtschaft student. See? Ah, it's my dissertation, my thesis. Uh, Diplom Arbeit. Yeah. Look, yeah. look, look, the foreign trade system of the European communist nations. Huh? Communist, man. Yeah. Um, communist. Yeah. No, that's my only copy. He gets captured because he lived in an era before computer backups, or at least that's what it feels like. Ooh, my papers. Now, you can already tell how I feel. The most sympathetic guy to me? Powers. He wasn't able to perform his duty. He failed, but it all feels very human. And he was risking his life for his country and is now being tortured. Pryor looks like an entitled idiot. Forget this Ivy League boy who obviously thought it was a good idea to study Soviet economics in Berlin in the middle of the Cold War. I gotta kind of agree with the CIA guy who I know I'm not supposed to agree with. You're never supposed to agree with the government guys. I'm not saying he deserves that, but come on. And then there's Abel. Even his art is tainted by spycraft. When the feds come looking for him, he asks, Would you mind if I uh, clean my palette? The paints, it'll get ruined otherwise. It's just behind you there. And in that moment, he destroys his spy message with the paints. So what am I supposed to hang on to? Donovan treats Powers as the least important one. When he talks about Abel, I like this guy, your guy. What happens to your guy when he gets home? Well, we have to make a determination whether our guy is now your guy. Well, now, as I said to you before, he's acted honorably. He's still your guy, believe me. Of course you will say that if it were true. And if it were not true. When he talks about Abel, he's his best friend. And with Pryor... This kid Pryor that the East Germans have, how old is he? 25. Why? Same age as Dougie. Who? Uh, an associate of mine. Though that's also hilarious hook that it's his assistant who he saw for five minutes and isn't even a family member, that that's the reason he cares so much. And he's willing to screw up the deal to get all three. This whole thing has been to feel me out. 
would I swap one for one and which one? But I said, no, two for one, so they know where we stand. Yeah, what if they think about it and say, uh, forget it. You keep our guy, we keep your guys. Well, then I have fucked it all up. Hey, honey, it's me. Why is he willing to screw it up? So the Soviets are set. We get powers. We get powers. Well done. No, the East Germans won't do it. We won't get prior. And look, that kid matters. Every person matters. While that's a beautiful sentiment in life, it's not true in film. It's why all sorts of extras can die in disaster movies, and we're really just caught up with our main characters. Just because a human being is there on film doesn't mean we're going to root for them to be saved. You have to make us care. You have to put the work in. And this film does a sloppy job of that. Problem number four. The cost and the prize. So let's talk about our main character. My fiance watched the film with me and she said, is Tom Hanks just playing Tom Hanks in this film? And I agreed with the sentiment, but I think it's in the script. Let's take a look at our first meeting with Donovan. He's haggling with another lawyer over an insurance claim, where his client took out five guys apparently, which makes me hungry by the way. This is the last half of the speech. The guy insured by my client had one accident, one, one, one losing control of the car and hitting five motorcyclists. From their point of view, five things happened. Well, look, Bob, may I? Bob, Jim, if I go bowling and I throw a strike, one thing happened. Ten things didn't happen. Jim, my guys aren't bowling pins, as much as your guy may have treated them so. If, let my, me finish, my... let me finish. If your house is insured for $100,000 and a tornado carries it away, it carried away one house. It didn't pick up every stick of furniture and destroy it in a separate incident. If that is what you're saying, well, then there is never any limit to our liability, and that is the end of the insurance business. And then, Bob, nobody is safe. A perfect character introduction should do all these things. Tell me who he is, what his problem is, what his flaws are, and for a perfect score, also in that time advance the setting, the plot, and the theme. What does this introduction do? Well, I get that he's a good, smart lawyer, but what he says isn't mind-blowing. It advances a plot-slash-theme element, the trading of 111 of the spies later on, as well as the idea that if you don't have a certain system in place, it all falls down. But what do I learn about him? Not a lot of work gets done in the monologue. It's not bad or poorly written. It's just solid. It encapsulates where his character seems to live and where this movie resides, just being pretty good. There's another monologue later on in this movie that Abel has. It's probably the monologue that won Rylance's Oscar. It's a pretty good monologue. It's about the standing man. Stoiki muzik. <laughs> I remember them saying it. Which sort of means like uh, standing man. Standing man. But it doesn't do a lot of work for this film. I already know Donovan Steadfast. In fact, he starts the movie Steadfast and he ends it Steadfast. If anything, he's too steadfast, or actually too easily steadfast. I mean, look at the stakes here. What would it cost him to lose the case? Nothing. In fact, he's more popular if he loses. What would it cost him to not make the trade in Germany? Nothing really. 
The second part of the film works because his actual life is at stake at times, and he has real obstacles put in front of him. In the first part, for him, it's an intellectual exercise, so there's no cost to him losing. There's a cost to his family, but he never really answers for it. And what about the prize? What does he get out of winning, or what does he lose by not winning? Nothing. Win or lose, he's the standing man. He's the same good strong man at the beginning of the film that he is in the end. For my fiancé, it was a problem watching Tom Hanks be that free and easy and charismatic. But for me, it was only a problem because the rest of the movie didn't do enough work around him. I find that interesting and fun to watch, him being confident and capable. Usually the basic question you ask in any film is how the hero changes at the end of it. But fine, let's not do that. Let's have the standing man against the world. The world is changed by him, not the other way around. I can get on board with that. But going against the grain like that, making a character that doesn't change, is also why those other characters and circumstances are so important, and stand out when they don't work, when they don't make me care. But going against the grain like that, making a character that doesn't change, it's also why those other characters and circumstances are so important, and stand out when they don't work. Because Donovan's character does none of the work to raise the stakes or make me care. He's a good guy doing good things, and only in the second part is anything at risk. Problem number five, hindsight. I'm not sure how Steven Spielberg feels about the Cold War. I know how he feels about World War II. He's made that abundantly clear. But what he's trying to tell me with the point of view of the world he's created here seems a little strange to me. What do I mean by that? Well, in any period piece, you can play with the mores and circumstances of the past seen through our modern lens. It's why, in Mad Men, it's funny to see a mother scolding a child who has placed a plastic bag over her head, not because she might suffocate, but because she dumped the clothes out of it to wear it. So we watch this film, and we know the Cold War is over, and we won it, I guess. No nuclear war, no loss of the United States. But as far as I know, no one looks at the Cold War and says, Oh, we were freaking out over nothing. Everything was way more trumped up than it needed to be. They didn't hate us. We weren't that close to nuclear war. As far as I know, the more we learn, the more thankful we should be. And yet, over and over again in this film, it's designed to make the characters who fear Russia and a nuclear war look foolish or short-sighted. Rights as what, Counselor? We're in a battle for civilization. This Russian spy came here to threaten our way of life. That's coming from the judge, who's being unfair, shutting down our hero for wanting to treat our illegal alien spy as an American. Now, I know I'm supposed to be on my hero's side, right? Am I supposed to do that because the judge is wrong? I mean, he could be right. The fact that their lives could be threatened by him, it doesn't push me closer to my hero. Or take uh, the scene with Donovan's son. He sees a terrifying film at school about nuclear attack and duck and cover, and Donovan finds him filling a bathtub. This field, use the shower in your room, use the sink downstairs, the garden hose outside. Those are good ideas. But, Roger, I don't see this as being something you ever have to worry about. Yeah, but when you hear the sirens, there may not be enough time to fill the tub in the sinks. Not gonna be any sirens. Maybe Donovan is being a good father, but the scene doesn't come off like that. He's not afraid of it, because somehow he has our knowledge. Duck and cover is foolish. It's been played for laughs in lots of movies. But being afraid that you need to use it because there's a nuclear war, that's not foolish. Or take this guy when Abel is sentenced to prison instead of death. In the name of God, why are we hanging him? Sit down. He's a spy! He's killing people! 
I mean, I don't know if that's an extra that just really went for it and they enjoyed the line, but that's so over the top. I know Spielberg is begging me to find him ridiculous. And I can judge his bloodthirstiness. It's not very generous as a human being. But I don't want to judge him, Donovan's son, or the judge for being justifiably afraid. The problem with this attitude is that it's supposed to align me more with Donovan, with him being the modern, reasonable man, and everyone else stuck with the fear of their time. But it does the opposite. He's being rather dismissive, or supernaturally predictive. Well, I've already talked about the center, which is Donovan both defending the spy and then brokering the trade. And all the films I've done so far in this podcast, they start out with decent pieces to work with and then unravel the longer they go on, the all-too-common third-act problems. But this film has a pretty good second and third act, really only held back by its very long first. So I'm going to focus on that. The quick fix would be to make this hour-long prologue that feels like another film an actual prologue. You get about 10 minutes in a film setup, maybe 15. So if we started with the trial's verdict, or the U2 crash, and then fill in the rest with exposition, Donovan's assistant can come running in. It happened. Donovan looks up. What happened? Cut to Donovan walking and talking down hallways before being sent off to Germany. But that would betray our center. You want both to happen. You want to see the defense, and then you want to see that payoff. Another avenue that we can go down is cheaply heightening the stakes for Donovan. He's at his rope's end. He's tired. He's not at his best. But he's a historical figure. He probably was a pretty good lawyer. He probably had enough money. He probably would have been fine if none of these things happened. So let's keep him the immovable object against which the earth has to move. So what do we do? From the start, we tell everyone's story. Donovan and all the prisoners. Abel, Powers, and Pryor. Abel's monologue isn't about Donovan, but about himself. Why he is no longer afraid. Why he did what he did a real human, vulnerable moment between him and Donovan, but it's about Abel. We have a scene between Powers the pilot and his friend who's played by Landry from Friday Night Lights talking about how afraid they are and why they serve. We have a scene between Pryor the student and his German girlfriend. She asks him why he would study in such a dangerous place, and he replies that we all have to live on the same planet, and the only way we're going to be able to do that is by learning from one another. So now everyone has a conflict between duty and personal safety about doing the right thing and doing the thing that will make you feel safer. Donovan takes the case and defends Abel, while his son is petrified of war with Russia. His son is angry with him for defending the enemy, making the world more dangerous. And Donovan has to explain to his son what it means to be an American. But what makes us both Americans? Just one thing. One, one, one. The rule book. We call it the Constitution, and we agree to the rules, and that's what makes us Americans. Also, if you do enough of the right things, the good guys will win, which he'll get to prove to his son when he saves all the people that we now care about. The hour ends with Pryor and Powers being taken, and Donovan being shut out by his son. And now we're set up for Donovan to enter a mysterious, dangerous world, and show that good does win out in the end. Thanks for listening. Again, please leave us a like on iTunes if you enjoyed the podcast. Music by Fifth Sequence and DJ Outclass. Shout out to Gelsey for the suggestion. If you have a film you would like me to discuss, I can be reached at plotmechanics at gmail.com. Until next time.